0: In 1990, the United States launched the first major optical telescope into space. For the past 30 years, it has remained in low orbit around Earth. It has drastically increased our understanding of the universe. With this telescope, astronomers discovered that black holes are probably at the center of every major galaxy. It has helped us calculate the age of the universe, which is roughly 13.8 billion years old. And it has revealed galaxies billions of light years away. This telescope is called the Hubble Space Telescope, and it is named after the 20th century astronomer Edwin Hubble. Edwin Hubble made some of the most important astronomical discoveries in modern history. Before Hubble, astronomers believed that the Milky Way galaxy was the only galaxy in the universe. In fact, most people thought it was the entire universe. Hubble showed us that what we thought was everything was really just the beginning.
1: He really started a new era. Uh, of astronomy, in which we became concerned with cosmological questions of our origin, our birth, and our fate. Uh, My name is Marsha Bartushak. I'm a professor of the practice emeritus at MIT and also the author of seven books on astrophysics and the history of astronomy.
0: Hubble expanded our knowledge of the known universe infinitely, His discoveries and methods are presented in his 1936 book, The Realm of the Nebulae.
1: Astronomers consider this an absolute classic in astronomy, uh, comparable to Copernicus and On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, or Darwin and the Origin of the Species, because it captures a transformative moment in astronomical history i think there was no other book which condenses such a moment where the very structure and the nature of the universe had become so radical from what was known before welcome
0: to writ large a podcast about how books change the world i'm zachary davis in each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Marsha Bartushak to discuss Edwin Hubble's *The Realm of the Nebulae*. Could you give us a high-level view of how humankind has understood the cosmos from early, you know, literary cultures and what we know um, up to up to Hubble's discovery?
1: We start, as we always do, with the Greeks and Aristotle, because he set the stage for 2,000 years. He did uh, establish uh, a universe with set dimensions, boundaries. And at the center, of course, was the Earth, uh, which he felt that that was the reason we have gravity, because everything in the universe was centered towards us, Everything revolved around us, so we were the center of the universe, and this was the uh, mainstay for 2,000 years in philosophical and scientific uh, thought.
0: Establishing ourselves as the center of the universe made sense at the time. When people looked up at the sky, they saw the sun, moon, and stars moving around them. This idea really took hold in the minds of astronomers and the public alike and it stayed for roughly 2,000 years. During the European Renaissance, things began to change. Astronomers had access to better technology and could get more precise measurements than Aristotle. In the 16th century, astronomer Nicholas Copernicus published On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, which showed that the sun was actually
1: at the center and the Earth and other planets revolved around it. So we had that shift. Suddenly, Earth was kicked off to the side. It was no longer the center of the universe. The sun was the center. But to Copernicus, he felt that was fitting. As he says, the sun sits there as if on a kingly throne. I think those were his words uh, within his book. So that set the agenda.
0: Copernicus knocked the Earth off center stage, but our solar system was still the center of the universe. To figure out the position of our solar system, astronomers had to understand the Milky Way. For thousands of years, astronomers had been hypothesizing about the big band of light in the sky, known today as the Milky Way galaxy. It was commonly believed that this band was made up of individual stars, but no one was able to prove it. Then, in 1608, an eyeglass maker in the Netherlands invented the world's first telescope. This early telescope was used horizontally for viewing faraway things on Earth. A couple years later in 1610, the Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei made a few improvements to the design, turned it vertical, and began observing the stars. He studied the Milky Way and was able to see that indeed, it was made up of many faint stars. Roughly 150 years later, in the mid-1700s, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant speculated that the stars in the Milky Way were held together by gravitational forces, and this huge body of stars was rotating. He compared it to the way our solar system is held in place and rotates. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, astronomers found more evidence that Kant was right. The Milky Way galaxy was a spiraling disk of stars. They believed the Milky Way contained all the stars in the universe, And our solar system was at the center. That all changed in 1918 when astronomer Harlow Shapley turned his own telescope on the Milky Way.
1: It was at Mount Wilson Observatory in California that Harlow Shapley began measuring the distances to the globular clusters that surround the Milky Way. And by doing this, he realized that the Earth was not at the center of the Milky Way, because the globular clusters were a little off-kilter.
0: Based on his measurements, Shapley realized that the stars were not surrounding us symmetrically. If we were in the center of this galaxy, there would be roughly the same number of stars in every direction. But that wasn't the case. This discovery repositioned us in the galaxy.
1: Harlow was famous for saying, the solar system is off-center and consequently man is too. Throughout
0: history, we've really tried to hold on to the idea that in some way, we are at the center of the universe. Aristotle believed Earth was the center, and people agreed. Copernicus shook things up a bit and showed that the sun was actually at the center. But our sun and our solar system were still at the center. Shapley really shook things up by discovering that we are actually off to the side of the Milky Way. But Shapley still held on to the idea that the Milky Way was the entire universe roughly 100,000 light-years across.
1: And of course, finally, uh, Edwin Hubble stepped forward to show that the Milky Way uh, was just but one of billions of other galaxies that uh, fill the universe. Uh, And that, to me, was the most drastic change when you think about it in terms of scale, that suddenly it's not that we're kicked off the center. Uh, We're becoming almost invisible when you think about all of the other matter and galaxies and objects that are arrayed around us throughout a universe that is, well, we now know billions of light years across.
0: Like many astronomers, Hubble got his start by just looking up at the night sky. He was born in 1889 in the Midwest in Missouri.
1: You have to remember that at the end of the 19th century in the Midwest, there was no electrical grid. It was all kerosene lamps. And at night, maybe you had a few candles in your home, but you could walk outside and the night sky absolutely surrounded you, and it made a big impression uh, on many young men, women too, but it was the men who had access to the telescopes at that time, who became enamored of astronomy.
0: Hubble grew up middle class. His father was trained in law and worked in insurance. When Hubble was 10, his family moved from Missouri to the suburbs of Chicago.
1: He went to the University of Chicago, and he wanted to major in astronomy, but his father was very practical and said, "No, no, 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 no." His family laughed. They thought that was just a ridiculous occupation. Uh, why would anyone want to become an astronomer, and how would you get paid for that? So uh, his father insisted that he study pre-law, so he did both actually. He took the pre-law classes prepared for that, but he also took science on the side. In fact, uh, he was noted as the best physics student at the University of Chicago, worked under Milliken, the Nobel Prize winner. And he did so well that after graduation, he was selected to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. Now, that was a transformative moment for him.
0: Hubble still wanted to study astronomy, but again, his father insisted he pursue law.
1: So he did have this background in law, but while he was there, not telling his family a thing, he hung out with the astronomers and tried to gather as much information as he could on astronomy.
0: After Oxford, Hubble returned to the Midwest and taught Spanish, physics, and mathematics at the New Albany High School in Indiana.
1: His father, in this interim, died, and it was his moment of liberation because. Once uh, he finished a year of teaching high school, he decided to go back to graduate school. He went back to the University of Chicago, now freed from his father's edict to have a practical profession, and he went uh, and worked at the Yerkes Observatory uh, there in Wisconsin, which was run by the University of Chicago, and did his work. Hubble was finally
0: studying astronomy.
1: Most astronomers in this era, in the 1910s, the big thing in astronomy was to study the planets and to study stars. Uh, to study the types of stars, cataloging the stars, where the stars were moving, uh, how they were arranged in the Milky Way. That was the, the real hot spot in
0: astronomy. But there were also these lesser-known cloud-type formations that astronomers were seeing called nebulae. This is where Hubble decided to focus his attention.
1: Nebulae, they were a side thing. Nobody really cared about them. But he was sensing through the work of some earlier other people that this was going to be important to discover what they were calling the mystery of the spiral nebulae. What were they? The
0: nebulae looked like clouds of gas and debris, and that's what astronomers thought they were for centuries. But some of the nebulae looked different. They looked like little spiraling disks.
1: At the turn of the 20th century, it had been assumed when they were seeing these spiraling disks in the sky that they were simply baby solar systems in the making, which made sense. When you think of a spiral galaxy, it does kind of look like a planetary system that's in birth.
0: That was the widely accepted theory at the time, but there were some astronomers who weren't convinced. Another American astronomer named Heber Curtis had also been studying these spiral nebulae. Within them, he observed stellar flare-ups, which are basically when a star gets really bright for a few weeks to a few months, and then goes back to its normal brightness. This is also called a nova. Curtis thought these nebulae flare-ups looked like the novae he saw in the Milky Way, only they were much fainter. So he came up with a theory. He said the spiral nebulae were galaxies that were really far away, perhaps even millions of light years away, outside of our galaxy. This was a big deal. Up until this point, astronomers believed that the Milky Way was everything. It was the entire universe. Curtis presented his theory in 1920 at the Great Debate, a famous astronomy debate between himself and astronomer Harlow Shapley. Remember, Shapley was the one who determined our solar system wasn't the center of the universe. But he still believed that the Milky Way was the entire universe. He argued that the spiral nebulae were solar systems forming at the edge of the Milky Way. Curtis believed the spiral nebulae were galaxies of their own that existed outside the Milky Way. These two astronomers represented the two competing theories on the nature and location of the nebulae. But Curtis had no way to prove his theory he needed a way to measure the distance to the spiral nebulae. If he determined the distance, he could determine whether or not the spiral nebulae were in the Milky Way galaxy. And then he could get closer to figuring out what exactly these mysterious clouds were.
1: So what Hubble did when he arrived for his graduate work at the University of Chicago was to say, I think this is an important problem. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to figure out what they are. And that is what he dedicated himself to. He did his uh, thesis on it. Right at the end of his thesis, the United States entered World War I. And he immediately went off and joined uh, the army, uh, rising up to the position of major. He didn't see any action, uh, though again, he claimed he did, though there's no documentation for it. Hubble
0: had arranged that after the war, he would have a position at the Mount Wilson Observatory in Los Angeles, California.
1: When the war finished, he did arrive on Mount Wilson in September 1919. And just a week later, the world's largest telescope, the 100-inch Hooker Telescope, uh, opened up for operation. So he arrived with the right problem, with the right instrument, uh, Everything. It was the perfect storm for him to arrange to work on his long-term project.
0: For the next few years, Hubble observed the nebulae, not just the spiral nebulae. He saw some that looked bulbous, some elliptical, and some like spiral disks. He developed a classification system for them based on their shape. Astronomers still use this system today.
1: So he did these classifications, but he was also on the lookout uh, for anything that would help him determine the distance. Hubble
0: wanted to settle the debate between Shapley and Curtis. To prove or disprove Curtis's theory, he had to determine these spiral nebulae's distances from Earth. And finally,
1: after about three, four years of surveying, he hit pay dirt, And that was on the night of October 4th, 1923. He was photographing the Andromeda Nebula, the most famous nebula of them all, which we now know is the closest spiral galaxy to us. And he noticed there was a new flare-up, a new star that he hadn't seen before. And he went back the next night to to double-check. And yes, he confirmed it. There was a new star there.
0: Before digital imaging, telescopes worked similar to analog film cameras. The telescope would project whatever it was focused on onto a photographic plate. These plates would then have to be developed in a dark room. The astronomer used the eyepiece in the telescope to align the telescope with the object they wanted to look at. But to really see the full picture,
1: they had to study these photographic plates. So he took his photographic plates back to his offices. That's really where the work is done. Back in the office, not at the telescope. He didn't know what he had yet. He thought he had just spotted a NOVA. Uh, Which is a flare up on a star. The star doesn't explode, it just flares up. But when he was back in his office, he started comparing his plate with plates of the Andromeda Nebula from other decades to sort of see was this truly a new star or was it something else?
0: He had found a star that seemed to be fluctuating in brightness.
1: He was seeing in some plates it was bright. And then in some plates, it was dim, bright and dim, bright and dim. This was a variable star, and that was key. This was going to be his cosmic measuring stick.
0: Roughly a decade earlier, an American astronomer named Henrietta Swan Leavitt had figured out how to measure the distance between variable stars using their bright and dim sequence. This became known as Leavitt's Law. Hubble used this law to calculate the distance out to his variable star.
1: And he scrawled it in his notebooks. He worked out the formula, and he could see that that variable star was at least a million light years away, far beyond the borders of the Milky Way. So it was really there in his office in February 1924, that's when he discovered the universe, that uh, he had a definite a direct cosmic measuring tape out to that star.
0: Hubble had proved it. There were stars beyond the borders of the Milky Way. The Milky Way was not the entire universe. And the spiral nebulae were not nebulae at all. They were galaxies that existed outside our own. The same was true of the other nebulae that Hubble had identified. The bulbous, elliptical, and irregular nebulae were actually galaxies. There were still actual nebulae, clusters of interstellar dust and gas, but Hubble had made an important distinction. With this discovery, he settled the debate between Curtis and Shapley, proving Curtis's theory correct. Hubble wrote Shapley a letter informing him of this new discovery.
1: There was someone in his office uh, who was there at the time he opened up this very letter and saw him read it. And Shapley looked up, held up the letter in the office and said, this is the letter that has destroyed my universe. He knew, he knew right away that Hubble had clinched it. So uh, Shapley knew the game was over uh, with this uh, discovery. What was
0: the impact of this discovery when it started to leak into, you know, the scholarly community, other astronomers and, and, and the regular public?
1: It's interesting. I think the astronomers were already coming to suspect that Heber-Curtis, who had all that circumstantial evidence, evidence, was indeed correct. They were getting adjusted already to that fact. They were just awaiting the firm data that confirmed it without question. So the astronomers, I think, were just relieved that the mystery of the spiral nebulae had finally been solved. And I think they adjusted very quickly to the new regime. The public, they were in awe, uh, absolutely in awe. They, and the press went wild. If you go back to uh, that moment, uh, the newspaper accounts, uh, they were calling Hubble the modern day Columbus. There were record crowds at his lectures. They were just in awe of this astounding uh, change.
0: At the time, there was another big question troubling the astronomy community. Years before, in 1917, an American astronomer named Vesto Slipher determined that some nebulae, which we now know are galaxies, were traveling really fast. But no one knew why. Once again, Hubble saw a problem he could solve. He took it upon himself to build on Slipher's findings. He used his cosmic measuring stick to determine the distances and discovered that there was a pattern to this movement.
1: It turns out, double the distance, you double the velocity. If a galaxy is four times more distant, it has four times more the velocity. As it moves away from us, there is this linear pattern. It turns out, someone
0: had already identified this pattern two years earlier. His name was Georges Lemaitre. He was a Jesuit priest and mathematical physicist trained at Cambridge University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Lemaitre had been trying to find a solution that would explain this pattern between the distances and velocities of these galaxies. To figure this out, he was using Einstein's theory of general relativity. Lemaitre concluded that the pattern was a result of the expansion of the universe. He wrote a paper explaining his
1: discoveries. But he published this in a Belgian journal In French, it was an obscure journal. No one read this at all. Even when he
0: could get people to hear it, no one paid any attention.
1: In fact, when Lemaître went to a meeting that year in which Einstein was present, he got a meeting with Einstein and started to explain to him that he had made this wonderful discovery that his... You know, your theory of general relativity can explain how the universe is expanding.
0: Einstein, however, dismissed the idea. He thought Lemaitre's physics looked good, but said his intuition was abominable.
1: Einstein was then wedded to this idea that the universe was static, uh, unmoving. And he did not like at all this idea that things were moving, like that space-time was moving in the universe, And of course, if Einstein tells you that your theory is abominable, you're not going to spread it around. So he didn't talk about it much with other people.
0: Hubble published his findings on the movement of the nebulae in 1929. One year later, Lemaitre's paper was rediscovered, translated into English, and read worldwide. The pattern that both Hubble and Lemaitre discovered became known as the Hubble-Lemaitre Law. It describes the effect by which objects in the universe move away from each other with a velocity proportionally related to their distance. Eventually, astronomers confirmed Lemaitre's theory that the universe is expanding.
1: And then Lemaitre, in 1930-31, uh, did what you would do. You'd take this expansion, put it into reverse, and ask, what does this mean? And that is... Lemaître is the one who first got the idea of what we now call the Big Bang. He did imagine taking this all these expanding uh galaxies expanding out into space-time uh going into reverse and he imagined uh what formed was a prim- what he called a primeval atom that eventually started spreading out and creating the universe that we see today it was later dubbed uh derisively actually by fred hoyle uh, during a bbc radio cast at the uh, uh in the 1940s or 50s uh he called it the big bang
0: the hubble-lemaitre law transformed the way we understand the current universe and the history of the universe itself it was through the hubble-lemaitre law that we were able to trace the origins of the universe back to the big bang Astronomers still use this law when calculating expansion in the universe. In 1935, Hubble gave a series of lectures at Yale University explaining his discoveries regarding the nebulae. These became the realm of the nebulae.
1: And so it seemed natural to then uh, collate them together and put them into a book, which it was published in 1936. Uh, And in it, we learn about the different types of galaxies there are. He discussed how they're distributed in the sky, how he came to determine their distances, how they're fleeing away from us in a discernible pattern.
0: Hubble was instrumental in expanding our knowledge of the universe. But even though his discoveries are still relevant, he is largely unknown to the public today. What's your theory for why he has been overlooked why he is a an unsung hero
1: think about this for most of uh say from the time of isaac newton on we had this idea of the universe as simply the milky way there was this swirling disc of stars that resided in a void of unknown depth that was the universe And you could go out to a field and you would see the Milky Way across the sky. You could get a sense of the size and structure and nature of the universe. And it was part of your world. And what Edwin Hubble did was he confirmed that this wasn't the case at all. In fact, it was far beyond that.
0: For most of history, we have understood ourselves to be somewhat centered and somewhat relevant in the universe. But Hubble shrunk us down smaller than any astronomer had done.
1: Earth became this cosmic equivalent of a subatomic particle in this vast universe, not populated just by the Milky Way, but of hundreds of billions of other Milky Ways going out as far as we could see. This was a big shift. It made our planet
0: Solar System and Galaxy, one of billions, instead of the one and only.
1: So I think it doesn't become part of our everyday life, uh, the way the Galileo story did when he was telling us about the moon and sunspots and moons of Jupiter, which we can see in the sky, or Charles Darwin telling us, you know, the very nature of our humanity and its roots. Um, This is much more abstract.
0: There's some scales that the human brain just does not seem equipped to fully comprehend.
1: There is something about uh, the size of the universe. Uh, And there is a character in Thomas Hardy's 19th century novel called Two on a Tower, in which uh, one of the characters is an astronomer, gave splendid voice to this thought, this apprehension. Quote, there is a size at which dignity begins. Further on, there is a size at which grandeur begins. Further on, there is a size at which solemnity begins. Further on, a size at which awfulness begins. Further on, a size at which ghastliness begins. That size faintly approaches the size of the stellar universe. So I am not right in saying that those who exert their imaginative powers to bury themselves in the depths of that universe merely strain their faculties to gain a new horror. I love that and the fact that Hardy uh, was saying that in the 19th century, even before we knew he was aghast at the size of the Milky Way.
0: But Hubble's impact is alive and well in astrophysics. He paved the way for modern cosmology the science of the origin and development of the universe.
1: So Hubble, by recognizing the galaxies and leading us to our understanding of the expanding universe, started this whole trend to ask bigger questions of the universe. What is the fate of the universe? Will it be expanding forever or will it close back down? That became a big part. Another part that he started opening up was do galaxies evolve? Now in his day, he was only able to see maybe several hundred million light years um, away. We can now see almost back to the Big Bang. They are discovering early galaxies forming uh, like 13 billion years ago.
0: There is a passage in Realm of the Nebulae in which Hubble talks about pushing further and further up to the edge of where your technology can take you.
1: With increasing distance, our knowledge fades and fades rapidly. Eventually, we reach the dim boundary, the utmost limit of our telescopes. There, we measure shadows, and we search among ghostly errors of measurement for landmarks that are scarcely more substantial. That was in 1936, and in a way, he was setting astronomy's agenda from that point on to try for ever-bigger telescopes so that they can push the boundaries outward.
0: And in this tradition, we continue to push the boundaries of astronomy outward. In his time, Hubble had the 100-inch telescope, which means it has an aperture that's 100 inches in diameter. That's a little wider than 8 feet, or 2.5 meters. The bigger the aperture, the more light it lets in. Then, in 1949, the world's first 200 inch telescope opened on Palomar Mountain in California. In 1990, to get an even clearer look into space, the US launched a telescope into Earth's orbit and called it the Hubble Space Telescope.
1: And all of it was to try to push further and further outward so we could understand the landscape, and the evolution of this universe that had been discovered. For a long time, uh, astronomers thought that you had the Big Bang, galaxies were formed almost out of whole cloth, and then they just gracefully, serenely traveled outward with the expansion of the universe. And with this new instrumentation over the decades, We've discovered something very, very different, that we live in a very violent universe, that the early universe was very chaotic, that galaxies formed out of these little parts that came and became assembled uh, into bigger units. Uh, We discovered unusual objects like black holes and neutron stars. We see tremendous energies coming out of the center of galaxies. Uh, which we now know as quasars, so that these galaxies we now know go through these horrific, terrifying moments of great energies that they release out into the universe. And all of this started with those very first steps that Hubble did in recognizing what those spiraling disks were. And over time, that just pushed the questions more and more into what are their origins? What is their structure? How are they evolving? That became the new agenda of astronomy. Away from planetary science and stellar astronomy, discovering and and observing the stars in our galaxy, to the universe at large. It really changed the scope uh, of astronomy Hubble set a new pace
0: for astronomy and for humankind. The deeper we go, the more abstract it becomes. In a way, new discoveries are not only pushing our technology to its limits, but also our capability to grasp the vastness of the universe as we know it.
1: I think a majority of people, because this is so overwhelming, and because it is so abstract, when we go out to that dark field— we still feel ourselves at the center of the universe. When we look out at the stars, they all seem symmetrically arranged around us as if they were pinholes in some sphere that is enveloping us. So that when someone tells you that, no, beyond that, in those dark spaces, are further galaxies. When people see the deep space photo taken by the Hubble Space Telescope, when it, for 10 days, totally focused on a dark piece of sky and gathered in every photon, the picture you see, you go, oh, it just looks like uh, a stellar photo that look at all those stars. But you tell people, no, Every single object you see in this picture is not a star. It's a galaxy. They are astounded.
0: Hubble's discoveries opened our eyes to a universe much larger than we had previously imagined. Instead of 100,000 light years across, it is now believed to be roughly 93 billion light years across. Although we know more about the universe today than ever before, we are just getting started.
1: This is the part of realm of the nebulae where I feel we are seeing Hubble's most poetic moments. And it's at the very end. And it still holds up today as much as it did back in 1936. Thus the explorations of space end on a note of uncertainty and necessarily so. We are by definition in the very center of the observable universe. We know our immediate neighborhood rather intimately. With increasing distance, our knowledge fades and fades rapidly. Eventually, we reach the dim boundary, the utmost limits of our telescopes. There we measure shadows and we search among ghostly errors of measurement for landmarks that are scarcely more substantial the search will continue. Not until the empirical resources are exhausted need we pass on to the dreamy realms of speculation.
0: Hubble knocked us off our central throne in a way no other astronomer had done. He showed that our galaxy is just one galaxy among billions. His enormous contribution to astronomy and society was to shrink us down until we're nearly invisible. He set the course for new discoveries and has inspired astronomers and others to continue pushing the boundaries of our knowledge. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. If you're looking for another great podcast for book nerds, check out Borrowed from Brooklyn Public Library. It's a narrative podcast about superhero librarians, Brooklyn neighborhood stories, and what it means to be a free, democratic space in a changing world. Just search for Borrowed in your podcast app of choice, or on the web at bklynlibrary.org podcasts.